You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Einstein & Gogo is presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and a free domain name. To start your free trial, go to squarespace.com. Use offer code RRR to save 10%. Squarespace, triple R sponsors. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, fella. Morning, Dr. Shane. You know, I was almost late this morning. I was. I kept on waiting for an election result before I got in the car to leave, and <laughs> eventually I gave up. If you'd done that, you would have been here on Tuesday, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Isn't that when the postal votes get counted? Yeah, something like that. Although, I don't know. I mean, uh, not, not to say anything bad about our postal service, but uh, I'd be thinking Friday. Well, you know, whether mm-hmm. uh, my mail kind of gets delivered every other day or when they feel yeah. like it. So, uh, Dr. Ailey, we heard your voice as well. How are you? I'm well, Shane. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kicking, kicking goals today because uh, yesterday I managed to uh, deal with a 20-year drought. 20-year drought in... Well, my son was complaining because he had to wait three weeks for the second... Uh, Independence Day movie, and I said, "Well, I had to wait twenty years. <laughs> Suck it up, fella." So, but did you go and see it? I did, I did, and I have to say, I enjoyed it. It was, it was basically the you know the first film again. Yeah. Um, but it was great to see the original cast, all all of them except for um, Will Smith. I think pretty much everyone, you know, even the, the extras in the background were in it. And that all sort of you know, so the only difference really was a bit of grey and a bit of lack of hair and and you know a few kilos. But basically, it was um, still lots of awesome explosions. Oh yeah, yeah, special effects. Yeah. Of really cool. done and you know changed a lot i mean the the storyline was just um well basically as good as the first one that's all i can say <laughs> bit of fun though um which i wouldn't say for the rest of the evening but anyway let's get into some science broadcasting though shall we dr ray what do oh, you got for us uh i have for us today frigate birds first uh, when i was reading the story i went what the heck's a frigate bird sounds like a boat exactly um this is about actually birds that soar uh, we've recently heard stories about how climate change is impacting bird migration where birds need resting places. And as climate change happens, a lot of the feeding grounds and resting places are either getting smaller, getting farther apart, and we're really seeing effects on migratory birds. Well, this is on a different type of bird, and, and climate change might come in at the end, but completely different. These birds can soar for months. Mm-hmm. The frigate birds are actually, um, they, they nest uh, in islands near Mozambique and then migrate to the Seychelles, and they actually soar and fly over the Indian Ocean uh, and actually feed. But, but they actually go out for weeks to months at a time flying. And I kind of, when I read that, I'm like, wait, they're flying for a month at a time? And mm. they, they did the, this mm. was a study from, actually, it was quite interesting, Germany, British Columbia, the U.K., and France a zoologist tracking these birds. Um, I suppose in a couple of years, the the UK was on the study. I suppose in a couple of years, maybe the UK won't be on the studies. Um, <laughs> Scotland, Scotland. Yeah, Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, what they did is they actually tagged about 25 male and female birds as well, those 12 juveniles, with um, solar-powered GPS trackers. Nice. And track their three-dimensional behavior. So when they land, when they, ro- when they fly around, and what elevation they're flying and wind speed. Uh, and what's interesting is these birds can't land on water. They don't have oily feathers. They'll get wet. 
So they can only land on land and they have very tiny legs, so not good at swimming either. As it turns out, they're not even great at hunters. They need really abundant food to just kind of swoop in and grab it. But these things, they actually realize that there are a couple of birds they know can soar for, can fly for long distances, but they've never really tracked them to this level where they might go out for a food forage for a couple of weeks at a time, but they saw juveniles go for an average of 2.8 months wow. in the air. Wow. And, and here's the wild part. They're only flapping their wings when they're down on the surface swooping. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the time they're gliding. And what these birds are doing is they make hang gliders look like amateurs. They ride the thermals to go up and down. And so they don't have to flap to gain altitude. They actually swirl around and ride the thermals. And they kind of roller coaster ride between 50 and 650 meters. But here's the crazy part. They, they track the thermals by clouds, the same as hang gliders. But they'll also sometimes, they, they do actually go up to soar, particularly if they think they need to go a long distance. They'll go up to 4,000 meters into a cumulus cloud and then soar down. And, and actually, what's amazing is if they ride a thermal, their typical average, they go 650 meters up, they can soar for 60 kilometers before they need to find another thermal. Hmm. Wow. And, and, so, and, and so I'm glad Dr. Ailey's here because maybe she'll go, oh, yeah, I know about this. So I always thought the doldrums was like a term for mood, which it is. But it's actually it's a mariner term, of course, for regions in an ocean where you don't have much wind circulation and you yeah. can sometimes have sudden storms. Well, how these birds are able to get around and transport around long distances is they skirt the doldrums. So that's the edge of where you have these thermals and updrips and where they, it's, it's quite flat. And so while they can soar for long distances, they are bound by where there is wind. And, and they've evolved to be able to track this quite well, which means if you get a lot more unpredictability in, in the doldrums and, and storms in those areas, climate change might affect these birds a bit. But just amazing. And, and here's the last thing. They know they can fly. They know they don't land. Nobody's really clear on how they sleep. Well, the, the key is if, yeah. they, if they're actually... If they're up there in the thermal and they're gliding, they, they may actually be sleeping or, or resting during that period. I mean, oh, they're yeah. not doing any work at that point. They're just basically steering in a sense. So, oh, yeah, I mean, know, but it have to be short periods of time, surely. I mean, those thermals aren't going to hold them up there, you know, for several hours yeah, at a time. power naps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, power naps. Power yeah. I've, seen the, I've seen the signs just before I'm not off. Um, <laughs> you know, take a power nap. You know, a power nap. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I have to say, I think the secret to the power nap sign is they hope that you go to sleep and you stay asleep. I don't think Not in your car. Well, you know, by the side <laughs> by of the, the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, oh, but you know, not, not this whole thing of I'll take a three-minute power nap and then I'm good to go. In fact, I think you're worse mm. if, if you, you get yourself into yeah. that cycle. Mm. But I think the key is what they're hoping mm. is that you'll nod off mm. and you'll stay nodded off for a while. It's just my secret yeah. thought, yeah. So can I ask Dr. Yeah. Ray a quick question? So these birds... You're talking about them going huge, like horizontal distances, or latitude, yeah. uh, longitudinal distances as well, right? Not just kind of cruising around in the same little area. Oh no, no, up and we're, down. we're talking about very large distances because they wow. basically go from one side of the Indian Ocean to the other, largely mm. because how they how they feed is they'll follow tuna schools. Yeah. Okay. and actually eat the prey the tuna's scaring into swarms. Mm -hmm. And so they'll swoop in. Um, they're, they're not great hunters, so they actually need high concentrations. And so they, 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 they rely on other, other animals for kind of grouping surface. <laughs> Fish so, yeah, and, 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 yeah, and swoop yeah. in for squid and things. Yeah. So, cool stuff. Uh, well, 
Always these funny little creatures. I love them. Fantastic yeah. stuff. Dr. Ailey, uh, ozone? Ozone. I have a good news story from the world of climate, actually, for once. Yeah, that's weird. It is weird, but it's very exciting. Look, um, basically this week in, in the magazine Science, there's been a paper that's been describing evidence of actual proper recovery of the ozone hole, the hole in the ozone layer. Hmm. And, I mean, most people know about this for a long time now, you know, so... This, this hole in the ozone layer has been around for quite a while. It forms in the spring, kind of September, October, it reaches a peak and, and basically you get this dearth of ozone above Antarctica um, when about 30 kilometres above the surface in the stratosphere and um, basically, yeah, disappears for a while as this vortex forms over Antarctica. And it's not cool because ozone is really important for us, for life on Earth, you know, UV radiation and all that kind of stuff. If we don't have ozone, it gets through, we get really, really badly burnt. Mm. So um, having this ozone back is a really good thing. And and basically what happened um, with the ozone hole and and when scientists first discovered it was that as as the world came together and said, actually, this is a really big problem... um, the ozone is disappearing because we're injecting chlorine molecules into the stratosphere through these things called chlorofluorocarbons. Big word, but let's just call them CFCs. So these CFCs put chlorine into the into the um, stratosphere, wrecked the ozone. They were all what we use to uh, power fridges and aerosols, uh, you know, hairspray cans. Propellants. Propellants, yeah, exactly, propellants. things like that. And so the world came together in 1987 and signed this thing called the Montreal Protocol where mm. we said, right, we're going to ban them. We're going to stop using them, use alternatives and hopefully this will lead to a recovery in the ozone hole because it was getting worse. So they did that and waited and waited and waited and in about the year 2000 we kind of thought we were seeing a plateau in the minimum of the ozone hole and we thought, oh yeah, maybe things are getting better. Then things looked like they were starting to go in the up and the ozone hole was getting slower and then 2015 hit and we had the largest ozone hole in history. Wow. And everyone went, oh, actually, maybe this is not not repairing. Repairing. Mm. But a new study has come out in science, and this is from uh, work of scientists from MIT and also the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, in the United States. Um, and they've basically shown that actually 2015 was a blip, and it was a blip from a volcano in South America. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh. So what they did, they did a whole bunch of modelling <laughs> studies, and they actually showed that, yeah, in September, this when, when the ozone hole is the biggest, it's actually shrinking, and it's shrinking quite mm. rapidly. But 2015, what happened... Um, um, was that there was a, an eruption of this, I think it was called Calbuco Volcano in southern Chile, and a whole bunch of these these aerosols, these chlorine-carrying molecules got back up into the stratosphere because volcanoes eject all their stuff really, really high in the atmosphere up to the stratosphere, and it swirls around, got down to Antarctica, and baby, mm. uh, baby, uh, sorry, basically it was that that caused uh, the ozone recovery to kind of uh, lapse for a little while. But... It's back Coming on back. track, oh, wow. and they actually think it's going to recover pretty well in the next uh, decades. Who the says decades. the world can't come together and do exactly, something valuable? Exactly, exactly. This is a yeah. really good example of when it did. Yeah, so. it's, it's one I've used a few times, actually, and I know it's it's substantially simpler than the other problem that mm. we're facing as a, as a, as a planet, mm. but um, but it's one where we did actually manage to say, hey, hang on, mm. you know, the, the commercial benefits here are not outweighing the yep. potential cause. That's right. Uh, com- you know, um, the problem that this is, is going to lead to and, and we're going to do something about it and... and yeah, and exactly. It's a, it's a great, it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. good news story, yeah. and it, uh, yeah, it worked. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of uh, things high up, um, 
two days, two hours, six minutes and 31 seconds until Juno, the little craft, gets to Jupiter. How cool is that? It's wow. pretty awesome. Especially since you have the clock up on I know. I've got it right here. If you go to, if you go to nasa.gov, folks, um, you'll see on the right-hand side they've got a little clock and you can watch it. So what's that make it about? Uh, one o'clock, just after one o'clock on um, Tuesday, um, they'll do the, the engine burn. So this, this is pretty much the fastest object we've ever seen sort of sent anywhere yeah. um, it's flying and usually what happens with most of the probes we send to jupiter is they use jupiter's gravity the slingshot around pick up speed and head off into the far reaches of our solar system so you know for example you know um the new horizons probe and many others have done this over the years and so they get a few snapshots as they're going past yeah it's kind of like you know you're driving past that country town yeah it looks all right i'll take a photo but i'm really actually heading for sydney well, this time round, and this is really rare, we're actually putting this probe into orbit around Jupiter, but there's some pretty funky stuff that has to happen in order for this to occur. So, in fact, already all the instructions for Juno have been sent up to its onboard computer, and all the instruments on Juno that are not used in the engine burn process have actually been shut down. So it kind of goes to sleep, if you will, and it has to burn its engines for 35 minutes to slow down. So if you think about that's, how fast this thing's that's, going... That's a long time. Yeah, it has to burn its main engine for 35 minutes so that it gets captured um, and put into orbit of, uh, of Jupiter... And you can, I think you can just think, what could go wrong? <laughs> Not much. But, you know, this is another one of those examples where we see, similar to New Horizons, which was extremely tight in terms of timing and precision for it to work, and it did. So if this comes off, this will be a massive coup for NASA, I think, because it will give us insights into Jupiter that we just don't have. I mean, we, we know very little about the largest planet in our solar system. I mean, keep in mind, this is the planet that protects us. It's the big monster out there that when crap's flying in towards us, gets collected and usually ends up being scooped up by Jupiter. So it's it's been there protecting the inner planets for a long time. It's critical to our survival, and we know butkus about it, especially about its poles. So... A, a, I always refer to it as a big-ass planet. You could fit a 1,000 Earths in Jupiter. So that's what, if you grabbed all the other planets mm. um, from the solar system, stuck them together, you wouldn't get half of Jupiter. What about that big red storm, the big red eye on Jupiter? Well, How well, big is that? So that's, that's um, quite a few Earths wide, about 20 or 30, but it's changing size now. It's starting to dissipate slowly, and it will probably be gone, you know, in 50 years or something. But um, it's been around for a long time. But these are, these are basically cyclones. I mean, mm. they're, they're, they're weather patterns so they do go away but when you've got a weather pattern that this you know multiple times the size of the planet earth then it takes time for them to disappear so we will know um on uh, tuesday whether or not this has been successful and you can you can watch and, and hear all the telemetry in that live from um from the nasa.gov or nasa tv so did you say website. one o'clock yeah i think in so it's two days and two hours well two oh, days and two hours okay, from now so so yeah about one o'clock in the afternoon on, on tuesday so cool stuff um hopefully we'll get some well we will I have no doubt be getting some extraordinary new pictures of Jupiter and it is one of the most fascinating bodies because unlike some of the bodies in our um, solar system, it has a lot of structure. There's a lot of stuff to see. So and we might finally work out what's beneath those cloud layers. So anyway, cool. Um, just a hint, folks, it won't be cities. <laughs> <laughs> but there'll be cool stuff there. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're going to be back in just a moment uh, speaking to Professor Simon Lewis from the Department of Chemistry at Curtin University about some really amazing stuff to do with um, the ancient Egyptians and fingerprinting, if you can put that together. It's cool stuff. Hang in there. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
You are listening to Three Triple R. It's Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray and Dr. Alien. On the phone, hopefully, we have Professor Simon Lewis. Simon, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Simon, you're from the Department of Chemistry at Curtin University. Um, you, you're doing some amazing work with regards to fingerprinting, and it's related to a particular Egyptian pigment called um, Egyptian blue. Let's start there. What, what's so fascinating and interesting about this particular pigment? It's probably 3,000 years old or something? Uh, that's right. It's actually the uh, first recorded synthetic pigment. Um, it was first, well, we think it's first used around about 3,000 uh, years BC. So it's more like 5,000 5, years mm. old. Yeah. Um, and it, it's got some really interesting properties. But one of those that, that is of interest to us is that it actually uh, exhibits something called near-infrared luminescence, which means that if you shine ordinary visible light on it, then in the near-infrared, it glows. Now, of course, you can't see that uh, with your the normal eye, but with a, a properly uh, modified camera, it's very obvious. Mm. Now, what, what's this pigment made of? Because obviously, um, 5,000 years ago, they weren't using some of our synthesis techniques and so forth, and they, they I'm assuming, wouldn't have even known about this particular luminescence that you're speaking of. Uh, well, no, not at all. They, they probably never actually observed it. Uh, what they were interested in, of course, was the beautiful blue colour it has, uh, which um, for the uh, in ancient times was uh, really, really valuable. But it, 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 we're not really certain exactly how they came about to... Uh, uh, make it, uh, it must have taken um, maybe hundreds of years of, of just tinkering around, but they made use essentially of what they had around them, uh, a uh, copper-containing uh, material of some kind, uh, sand, and then also um, a strong alkali, which again was uh, just naturally around, and then they just uh, would roast this up together, and under just the right conditions of temperature, they would get this beautiful blue pigment. Now, again, it, we don't know exactly how they came about that, but it must have taken a while to do because the conditions to actually produce it are actually quite um, precise. Hmm. Now, when you say we don't know how how to go about it, that, that sort of implies to me that this is one of those things that was kind of lost in the ages. So it was used way back then, but it obviously wasn't continued over the last 5,000 years. Is that right? Yeah, but, well, that's... Uh, Again, I'm, I'm uh, an analytical chemist rather than a, uh, a uh, his historian, but my understanding is is that it was used uh, very commonly in ancient Egyptian times, but by the late Roman times, the, it appears to have stopped being used. And from that, you can just sort of infer that the secret of how to make it had uh, been lost. Mm. In actual fact, it was the, uh, I suppose you could con consider him the uh, father of modern chemistry, certainly from... Uh, uh, an analytical chemistry point of view that's uh, Humphrey Davy who actually discovered what this mysterious blue pigment was I think it was uh, on samples found at Pompeii I'm not entirely certain about that but he uh, carried out some analysis in the uh, early 19th century to establish what it was of course once you know what it is you can then start to uh, work out how to make it mm. Now Simon you're um, particularly interested in the use of this as a a, a dusting powder for fingerprints. It, it seems amazing to me that something 5,000 years old would be better than what we, well, I'm not even sure what we currently use to dust um, in fingerprints. All my knowledge in that area comes from shows like CSI. 
dear. <laughs> I'm partly joking there. <laughs> Yeah, I knew, I was waiting to see how long it would be before those three magic letters turned up. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, uh, what, dust, uh, dusting for prints has been around uh, for as long as uh, fingerprints have been around or been used for uh, criminal investigations. And it's essentially any finely divided powder that would stick to the fingerprint. Mm -hmm. uh, all very empirical. Um, these days there are lots of commercial types of powder. The, the key thing here is to try and in, uh, make certain that you've got a contrast with the background uh, so that you can see, so the fingerprint analysts can see the print. Now, I, my interest uh, in Egyptian blue was, uh, was actually uh, really just a, a uh, side effect of uh, visiting colleagues overseas. A colleague, uh, Greg Smith, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art had heard about some of the other work we've been doing on fingerprint um, uh, stains and detection techniques. And we got talking one day uh, while I was visiting, and he said, look, there's this, this is Egyptian pigment. We, we, we use it, or we use this near-infrared luminescence to detect it on ancient artifacts. What if we could use this to detect fingerprints? Hmm. And, and when you do this, I mean, how does it compare to traditional um, powders that are used? Does it give, I mean, are you recording the fingerprint then with the uh, different luminescence that these um, powders put out, or are you photographing in a normal way? I mean, how, how does that compare? Well, uh, I, I want to make it clear that the, the method we are suggesting is would be complementary mm -hmm. to existing techniques. We're not talking about replacing any other techniques. This is adding a new tool to the toolbox, as it were. Uh, typically, uh, when you dust the print, you uh, powder them and then you uh, take a photograph of them uh, uh, using uh, a digital camera. Okay. What we've done... Uh, sorry? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yep. Now, with our with our particular technique, um, we still photograph it with a digital camera. But the difference is, is that we've modified the camera to remove the filter that's inside the camera that uh, that actually filters out infrared light. The the the, the um, detector, as it were, within a modern digital camera is actually very sensitive to infrared light, and it has a filter in there to filter it out so it doesn't make your photographs mm. look weird. We have a modified one where we remove that. Uh, we then put a different filter on the front of the camera, on the front of the lens, which then filters out all of the visible light so that we only detect the near-infrared light. So uh, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that about digital cameras. Uh, this is Ray. I was wondering, are there scenarios where this is a, a can, can you think succeed or, or provide a better result than the standard technologies for powder? Are there particularly different types of surfaces that this might work better on that, that are typically known as hard surfaces or difficult surfaces to get a, a fingerprint on with the regular powders? Yeah, well, that's exactly why we're looking at it. There are um, particular surfaces and ones we're interested in, in particular, are highly patterned uh, or highly colored or maybe even fluorescent um, in, the, in the visible range. So the obvious one here is polymer banknotes, highly patterned, um, very difficult to get a print of uh, with uh, normal uh, under normal conditions, this our technique will actually, when you view it, and uh, you, you don't see the background, which means you just see the fingerprint. Now, 
there are other surfaces as well beyond banknotes. Um, colleagues of mine uh, at the University of Technology Sydney, who also work in, in a similar area, have um, made use of uh, particular brands of uh, soft drink have labels that are very highly patterned and actually happen to luminesce or glow at the same sort of wavelength that um, existing techniques use. So there, you know, we have our own particular um, sets of difficult. Uh, surfaces that we experiment on. Mm. Simon, just to um, to finish up, one thing I've always found fascinating is when you hear about people, you know, lifting a print from a surface. It, it, mm-hmm. It's almost described as though no one's ever touched that f- surface before, and there's only one print there. I mean, h- how does that work? I mean, how do you how do you distinguish one print from the thousands of other people who opened that door over the years? How do you know that that's the print you're looking for? Well, that's actually the misunderstanding. Um, uh, things like doorknobs and so on are not necessarily the things that you would dust for prints mm, because right. they would have lots of overlapping prints. You look for other surfaces which may have been touched, which may not be necessarily quite so commonly touched. Detecting fingerprints at a scene, uh, it's not like what you see on the TV. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's actually really, really tough. Um, and it, and it, is quite op- it is quite possible that you will have a scene where there is no fingerprint detected. I think probably one of the, or no usable fingerprint detected. I think probably the best example, if anybody uh, uh, still has this on uh, recorded, there was a, a, a series on TV just recently called The Murder Detectives, which was okay. um, about uh, a murder that occurred in Bristol uh, following the course of uh, the investigation. And it was very clear in that particular scenario where they had a high traffic area, they didn't find a single print of the suspect, a usable print of the suspect at the scene. So um, that's, you know, fingerprinting is challenging. Mm, mm. So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating work, and uh, I love to hear about some of these old uh, old things coming back and being used. It's really excellent that we have so much access, especially to some of these Egyptian artefacts and pigments and so forth. Good luck with the, the future of this. Uh, hopefully it will, as you say, become part of the toolkit for fingerprinting in the future, and um, keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Professor Simon Lewis is from the Department of Chemistry at Curtin University. You're listening to 3RRR, Einstein and Go-Go. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit more about, uh, I think we're moving on to um, to cancer, fingerprints to cancer. Bit of a change, but uh, we'll, we'll keep up somehow. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio, we have Christina Lacato. She is a PhD student from the ARC Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging at Monash University. Christina, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. You're working in the area of cancer. and There's a lot of people working in the area of cancer. We have a lot a of guests. Few. A few, yeah. which is good. Um, and if, do you know I went into the new coffee shop? Just, sorry, just sidetrack, Christina. Went into the new coffee shop that's opened under the new cancer building the other day. And coffee shops around the uni, I find are really, you know, service is not great sometimes. Just me. But this lady came up to us after, his, after we'd ordered and said, would you like some water? And we kind of didn't know what to say. We were a bit shocked. But anyway, all good. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful new building, though. Get, get on down there, folks, and just have a look because it's... Um, it's amazing what you get for a billion dollars. This is the Comprehensive Cancer yeah, Institute. Yeah, yeah, Comprehensive Cancer Centre. New, new home for the Peter Max. So it's, um, it's a fascinating building. Really, really impressive bit of architecture, but um, a lot of money. 
Anyway, uh, Christina, back to you. Um, you work in looking at uh, the causes and so forth of, of metastasis of, of cancer. Now, a lot of people have heard this word, but can you unpack it a bit for us? What, what are we talking about when we talk about cancer metastasis? Yeah, so basically when we are talking about cancer, we're talking about the growth of cancerous cells and mm-hmm. tumours. Um, but generally what we find is that uh, the growth of a primary tumour or the original tumour is not what generally kills someone. So generally what kills them is uh, that tumour breaking off into multiple different tumours which can spread around the body and form secondary tumours. Right. And that process is called metastasis. Okay. So basically the movement of one tumour to form others. And you find that about 90% of people that die from cancer actually die from the metastasis of the primary tumour. Yeah, so is, is this because the, the primary tumour is not in a location that's a, a vital organ or, or a problem for us? Is that, is that the main reason for that? It can be, and just the growth of many mul- uh, multiple other tumours um, so that can spread into all kinds of different areas that cause yeah. problems. Now, you hear about a, a time frame that people have usually, you know, so I've, I've had this cancer for a particular time and then all of a sudden it metastasizes and, and heads out. Why is there the delay? I mean, what's, what's causing the change there? Do we know? There's many different things that can cause the change. And um, what I work on is one specific protein that causes that change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's found in a couple of different c- types of cancer. So uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and melanoma particularly. And so this protein uh, plays an important role in allowing the cell to actually be able to break off and move to another site. Okay. And, and uh, so we, we know what it is. Um, what, what don't we know about this particular process? Uh, that's a good question. We don't know a lot about it, actually. So um, the protein that I work on is called PRX1, mm-hmm. and it was discovered about 15 years ago. Um, and since in those 15 years since then, a lot of research has gone into finding out that PRX1 is involved in cancers and it uh, plays a role in the metastasis. But we really don't know how it does that. And so what I work on is looking at how the protein specifically interacts with other proteins in the cell and causes that to signal the cell to move to another different place. Now, one of the questions I always ask researchers in in this context is, what does this stuff do normally? I mean, it's in the body. Yep. So what's it doing when the cancer's not there? Why do we have it? Yeah, so um, as I was saying that PRX1 causes metastasis, basically in a normal context, it causes cells to move. Okay. So you can understand that cells need to move around. Yeah, it's a good thing. Um, And you find it in a lot of different types of cells uh, throughout the body, but um, what you find in these cancer cells is that there's much more of this protein than you would normally find in a normal cell. Okay. Um, So... That can be quite useful for working out which cells might be cancerous and which ones are quite bad. So you find in breast cancer cells, if you uh, look at the cells and look at how much PRX1 is in those cells, you can kind of estimate the likelihood that those cells will metastasize and whether it'll be bad. So if you look at patients and look at their PRX1 levels, if they have high levels of PRX1, generally the cancers are going to be a lot worse. Hmm. So just let me backtrack for a moment. If, if I'm looking down the microscope and I see some breast cells, can I tell immediately whether they're cancerous or not? Uh, there are certain things you can look for to see if they're cancerous, yes. Right. But I can't tell immediately whether or not they have a high amount of this protein, if, no. if they're cancerous. So, so what you're saying is if I can determine that, I can work out these cells are going to metastasize soon, that's a problem, or these cells won't. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so you can stain the cells in a certain way to see if they've got a lot of this protein. Mm. Um, yep, and that will tell you. So let's talk about treatment or, or, or how this is going to help us. If, if we know that this is a, a protein we normally use in the body, mm-hmm. I mean, this sounds very much like the sort of chemotherapy route again, where you're using more of it in cancer metastasis. So if we can block that part, that's great, but it still affects the rest of the body. Is that, is that part of the issue here is that we need this thing to be doing its job normally? And if we kill it off 
it'll be a problem? Well, uh, with a lot of cancer targets, that can be the case. So it can be mm. bad to target them. Uh, with PRX1, we find that it's in very low levels throughout the body, but it's only very high in those cancer cells okay. that are going to metastasize. So it's a pretty good uh, therapeutic target mm. in that way. Okay. So do we know why it, there's more in these cancer cells? And sorry, PRX, I'm thinking T-Rex now. I'm imagining these times with T-Rexes walking <laughs> you around. You had to inside. make that I joke. I had to make that joke. Come on. Don't worry, everyone does. See, there you go. She's so, a climatologist. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ailey's been doing the thing uh, with the, the little, little arms, arms for, yeah, for like great. the last in, five minutes. In, in her field, nothing's been funny for about 20 years. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> anyway, so, sorry, my question. So, yeah, can you, can you, what was my question? It was about um, the, the amount of, of these PREX cells that were, were in there. Can you kind of use them to flag? Um, why, why, why is there more of them in, in, in these cells? In the cancer area. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, just because of different levels in gene expression and um, uh, based on uh, some mutations that people can have, but um, generally uh, it can be... It's regulated in many different ways, but for similar reasons that... Uh, different cancer cells can progress and have these different levels. Mm. So we're not exactly sure why. Yeah. Christina, you said that this was true in breast cancer, melanoma and prostate. prostate? cancer, yeah. What's happening in the other cancers? Because they all do this, right? So yes. is it a different protein? There's different proteins, yeah. There's right. a range of different proteins. And even within breast cancer cells and prostate cancer cells, etc., there are different proteins. But um, we found that this one plays quite an important role. And mm. because it's only highly expressed in those cells, we think it's a good therapeutic target. Yeah. So this is in, in the cells that are about to spread from metastasis and the mechanism for how that cell moves is still a fuzzy thing in the body, I, I think. Uh, I've, I've heard debates on that. But again, I'm an engineer. Um, the subsequent tumors, the ones that spread, do they also have the same high level of this protein? Or is it more of in the primary? Uh, so tumor? they would have similar levels because okay. they're from the primary one. Uh, yes. Mm. So, so now the, the next so the next stage for you is to I, I assume work out the structure. How are you going to go about this? Because you you need to understand what this PREX stuff is and how it works, right? Yeah. So that's the primary focus of my research is looking at how PREX one actually functions. And the field that I'm in is structural biology. So mm. how we do that is looking at um, the structure of the protein in atomic detail, where all the atoms are sitting, and how that affects its function. Um, and we use a couple of different techniques to do that, um, quite high-powered techniques, uh, including one called X-ray crystallography, mm -hmm. where we basically take the sample to the Australian synchrotron and shoot beams of X-rays at it to look at how those uh, atoms are all put together. And another technique I use is called electron microscopy, where we use a microscope, similar to a light microscope, but instead of a beam of light, you use a beam of electrons uh, to look at those molecules individually and work out the structure from okay. that. And once you've got that structure, presumably that's how you work out where to attack it or where its weak points are. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so what we've looked at so far is just part of the protein um, that's uh, highly involved in its function, and we've worked out the structure of that, and that's highlighted some areas where we could target them with drugs. So you can develop mm. uh, drugs to bind to specific uh, atoms in that molecule to target it. Mm. Look, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Now, you're doing this as part of your PhD project. How yes. long have you got to go? Uh, so I'm in the third year of my PhD, so another year or so, hopefully, because mm. it sounds like one of those things that even if you completed your PhD, you can't kind of leave this. You've got to yeah. stick with it, right? I mean, this is a big, this is a you've got a social responsibility, Christina. Are you my supervisor trying to get me to stay in the lab? <laughs> this is what postdocs well, are be. for, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, but but this sounds like something that you yeah. you'd want to stick with. I mean, yeah, this could a, be a really big deal. It's it's very interesting, and we're just kind of uh, at the beginning of this project at the moment because there's not much detail um, uh, at the atomic level of what these proteins are doing, mm. and the field in general of looking at 
big problems like cancer, um, looking at them from a structural perspective, being able to work out how the individual molecules are working. It's really interesting and there's a lot of work to be done in that field. Yeah. Look, it's fascinating stuff. Um, every time we hear about a new new approach to cancer, there seem to be so many and they're all so exciting. Mm. So I think we just have to keep working at it and see see how they all pan out because one of them sooner or later is going to really... Yeah, I mean, there's some really good stuff going on. Christina, thanks so much for coming into Triple R and uh, good luck with the rest of your PhD and finish it quick. <laughs> Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, because yeah, we, we need it done. Yep. Uh, Christina Licardo is from the ARC Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging at Monash University. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to take a short break for some music and some important station announcements and then we'll be back. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, in the studio, we have Connie Landers-Dorfer, who is from uh, a Career Development Fellow from the Drug Delivery Disposition and Dynamics section of Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, better known as MIPS, and Monash University. Connie, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. It's great to have you in here to talk about a topic that I think is it's been in the news a lot. This issue of antibiotics and superbugs, and we're all doomed, and all this sort of stuff. But you, I mean, a lot of that's hearsay. A lot of it's uh, some of it may be true. Um, but you're here to talk more about some of the specifics of the use of antibiotics on superbugs. One of the things that we were just chatting about before you came, um, before we went on air, was this issue of how patients who are critically ill actually process and use antibiotics. Now, in my mindset, I always thought that their kidney function and everything was really bad, and so the antibiotics would stay in their body. But this isn't always the case, you were saying. Yes, exactly right. So there are patients who have a decreased kidney function. Mm -hmm. However, there is a significant proportion of patients who actually have an augmented kidney function. So it can be up to 60% of these critically ill patients with serious infections. And um, this worsens the situation because... um, their kidneys work a lot faster than normal. Yep. Therefore, they get rid of their antibiotics faster and they can end up with low antibiotic concentrations in their body, which might not be effective to actually fight the infection. Okay, so well, do we know why these people have augmented kidney functions? It seems odd that someone so sick would have a, an organ sort of, you know, working overtime. Um, yes, there is there are a few um, a few reasons which seem to be um, correlated. So usually they are young male patients mm-hmm. with trauma okay. or burns, uh, yeah. and it seems to be connected to an inflammatory response in the body. Okay, now let, let's talk a bit about how antibiotics work in the body because I think before we get on to you know this element of superbugs and so forth, it's good to give people an idea. You get an infection. And the body mounts a response of some type that's presumably in the case where we need antibiotics inadequate. I mean, what happens when we take antibiotics? What's what's going on at that, that point? Yeah, so the, um, we take antibiotics, then um, depending on the dosage regimens, mm-hmm. how the antibiotics are given, um, we get um, increasing concentrations of antibiotics in our body, in our blood, yep. in other sites, and uh, concentrations decrease again. Then um, the antibiotics have to arrive at the 
site in the body where the bacteria are in order to act and they can act in different ways such as acting on the um, the membrane or the cell wall of the bacteria in mm -hmm. order to make them destabilize and then die for that reason okay. yeah yep and how do we know that something's becoming resistant i mean so in that case it sounds pretty simple you take the antibiotic it finds the bacterial cells in the body kills them off one by one but presumably there's a case where it doesn't kill them all. This is resistance, presumably, and why is that occurring? Yes, so um, resistance is, as yeah, most people would know from the gen general media, it's a big problem, and um, there has been a recent international review um, stating that if we don't find a better way of how to do antibiotic therapy, mm -hmm. there will be about 10 million people um, killed per year by 2050 from okay. resistant bacteria. So what's been happening is that um, bacteria have so many mechanisms in order to become resistant. So basically they react to being exposed to antibiotics yep. and they can, for example, um, have pumps that pump the antibiotic out of the cell or they can make enzymes which inactivate the antibiotics mm -hmm. and therefore yeah, bacteria are quite smart in finding ways to evade yeah. um, the antibiotic effects. And mm. therefore now, um, given we have this problem and we also don't really have a lot of new antibiotics on the horizon, we really need to make sure to optimize the way we are using the currently available antibiotics um, in order to kill the bacteria, save mm -hmm. the patient's life, and um, prevent more resistance occurring. So now it seems to me when I, when I see the use of antibiotics, it's, it's a bit of a sledgehammer approach, as in I give you and I give Ray and I give Ailey all the same dose. I don't know anything about your bacterial load. I don't know anything about your metabolism. You all get the same size pill and we just cross our fingers and hope for the best. Is that an accurate description of the current situation? <laughs> Yes, I think that's exactly part um, of the current problem, which is a one-dose-fits-all approach. Mm. And that's exactly what we've been showing in our uh, laboratory models, that uh, this is not what we should be doing. Right. But um, we should be individualizing the treatment towards the characteristics of the patient, such yep. as the augmented kidney function, as mm, we've talked yeah. before, as well as the characteristics of the bacteria. So, so now in the case of the augmented kidney function, because that's an interesting one where these patients really, you know, they need these antibiotics to be effective. They're already critically ill. They don't need further problems. Does that mean you just give them a massive dose to offset that? I mean, I mean how, how do you respond to that? Or do you mm -hmm. monitor it in real time? Um, yeah, so giving them a higher dose, that uh, would be the easiest approach. Mm -hmm. But that's not always possible. Because when you give them a higher dose in the standard way, it means um, they get the dose over a short time period yep. and they get very high concentrations, which can cause toxicities. Right, yep. Um, so that doesn't always work. So another option is to give the same daily dose, but in a different way. For example, mm -hmm. over a longer period or even as a continuous infusion. Yep. And um, we have seen results um, in our experiments, which um, shows that we can get better um, effectiveness with that approach. And then the third one is that some of these resistant bacteria, they can't be killed by one antibiotic alone, right. even if we optimize. And then we need combination therapy mm -hmm. of two antibiotics 
But again, it's important to combine them in a smart way and to give them in an optimized way. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, as Dr. Shane said, and as you've said, it, it's, this is pretty much about optimizing individual treatment, right? So my question is, how many different characteristics do you kind of have to look at? You talked about kidney function being kind of a major one. You know, if, if, that, if you find that that is a, a really major factor, can you just concentrate on that? Or are there other aspects of the, of the body that you can look at as well? Or to find this, you know, how much improvement do you get from the one? And, and can you combine other, other ones as well? Um, yes. So kidney function is tends to, in those critically ill patients, mm. kidney function tends to be the major one, mm. which is found in studies where um, patients are evaluated and concentrations of antibiotics are measured. However, there is other factors such as body weight mm. or um, patients receiving a lot of fluid replacement. Mm. So these are all, all factors which affect it. So ideally, um, if we know if we monitor for some of these factors in advance, give the patient the best dose and regimen at the beginning, because it's important they get something very quickly. Mm. And then ideally, if we can monitor and measure concentrations in the patient later, we can adjust for that individually. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that there's, there's this whole issue around the use of antibiotics at the moment, and there's so many social elements to this that are problematic. I mean, these days when people, many people go to their GP, there's almost a demanding, you know, almost not quite bullying, but certainly, you know, you must, I've paid to see you, you must give me antibiotics, even though I have a viral infection. Uh, presumably, this is a big part of the, the issue that we have as well, is that it's not just the amount in the body, but the totally inappropriate use in certain circumstances. Is that, is that part exactly, of it? Exactly, yes. I mean, that's certainly part of the issue. And there has been also a recent review in Australia finding exactly um, what you just mentioned, mm. that um, people get are demanding or get prescribed yeah. antibiotics for, for colds or viral upper respiratory tract infections, which where antibiotics don't give you any effect except maybe side effects and more resistance. Mm. So, yeah, certainly mm. that's also a big part of the issue. And, and just, to, I mean, sort of more medical questions than someone from, from your background, but, but, you know, when we take antibiotics, does it change our own innate ability to combat Bacteria? Does it go down as a result of our reliance on antibiotics, or is the body as good as it always is? I mean, so if I if I don't, you know, wait and see if my body can do the job itself, but I quickly run to the doctor and get antibiotics because I've got to be at work next week, does that reduce my overall resilience? Um, it probably depends on the antibiotic. Mm. Um, however, um, so some some antibiotics um, can have effects on on the immune system but in general um so yeah in general it has basically um the antibiotics should be given to patients who are not able to combat the, right. the infection by themselves such as those critically ill patients where and they shouldn't be used injudiciously for patients yeah who basically want to go to work tomorrow yeah. and they have a cold and it doesn't work yeah. anyway sounds like we need a good education campaign to teach people about antibiotics we're actually thinking about doing a, uh, a specific show here just on antibiotic resistance in, resistance in the coming months to try and debunk some of the myths around this and get to some of the stuff Connie, really interesting work. Uh, uh, up there, I John's think, got his um, car parked you know, over here. To, it's all part of that personalisation right, approach to medicine. And this is now uh, where obviously people are living and dying on the basis of these antibiotics working. So hopefully if we can get that right, we'll be saving a lot of lives. Well done. Thank you.
Connie Lansdorfer is a, a career development fellow in the Drug Delivery Disposition and Dynamics part of the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. We're almost out of time. Dr Ray, Dr Ailey. Um, Dr Ailey, what's going on with the weather? The weather? It's perfectly normal for this time of year. Oh, there you go. Much. See, that's what feels we want to hear. It feels a bit cold, but it, we've just had so many years of above average uh, temperature, you know. Yeah. But this is actually about normal. It's about normal. Mm. So we should expect some snow and uh, oh, good things I to come. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. When we get to the hills. Well, it's been snowing a bit. It has. Uh, it Lake has. Mountain and so forth over dumps. the last week. Good mm. dumps. And mm. I think there's another one coming this week. There is another one coming week. this week, I think, yeah. And more weather down the coast? Yes. Another East Coast low, as they call it. This big uh, cyclone forming off New South Wales. It looks like it will be forming mid-next week. A cyclone or a I, I should say no, no, no. It's a, it? it's a it's a cyclone, but it's not a hurricane. It's a we we get cyclones. Any low pressure system is a cyclone, basically. So, so stuff that goes around the circle. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. You yeah. guys, um, you're very apt at your descriptions, aren't they, Doctor Ray? <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> Things that go around in the circle. That's Things what we should call it from circle. now on. I Things think. that yeah. go around. Like well, at least people know what you're talking <laughs> about there. Spinny you know? things. Well, put you this way: if I hear a cyclone, I'm, <laughs> I might take a different approach yeah, to no, 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 you know, no, rain no. and wind. Yes. But you know. <laughs> well, there it is. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. You've been listening to Science for an hour. We will bring more to you next week. Until then, remember science is everywhere and have a fabulous Sunday. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.